man, you know what time it is. It's about that time again. It's Monday night here on Blog Talk Radio. I am Jonathan Ragus, and this is The Stoop. And it's going to be a great, great show tonight. But before we get to who our guests are going to be, we have to talk about who my co-host is. And it's Jeff Farini. What's going on, man? Hey, man. It's great to be here. TGIM. Thank God it's Monday because we are back with a massive episode of The Stoop tonight. And John's going to tell you why with a super special guest. I am ecstatic about this. This is something that, uh, you know, we were looking forward to for quite a few weeks now, and it's finally here. It's July 11th, and our guest tonight is the legendary Keith Shockley from Public Enemy, as well as writer-producer and a good friend of mine, Ian Holt. They're going to be joining us at the uh, top of the hour at 8 o'clock, and we're going to talk to them about a brand-new documentary that they're working on about Public Enemy, you know, from the way they started coming up in Roosevelt, Long Island, not that far from my house in Queens. So uh, really looking forward to this, man. It's going to be a good, good, good interview. Can't wait to talk to Keith about his music, the Public Enemy documentary, and some pro- uh, projects he has going on. Then we're going to talk to Ian about him producing the documentary, as well as some other uh, projects that he has going on as well. But before we get any further, we got to spend this, uh, send a special thank you out to Tommy D. from the Knicksblog.com for joining us last week. Uh, for our NBA free agency show, and it was really good. Um, unfortunately, Tommy had to be somewhere that night. It uh, just came up unexpectedly, so we definitely want to get him on because, really, I could have talked to Tommy for another hour, Jeff, man. There was so much going on in the NBA free agency, man. It's all that Nick love, though. You guys were uh, Nick loving and Sixer bashing. So that's right up your alley, I'm sure. But, uh, <laughs> no, great show. Tommy's great. Got a lot of insight, and uh, I enjoy it. I love talking sports and getting sports guys on here. Uh, I like everything. I like music. I like sports. And uh, we do it all here. And it's, it's really exciting. It's a great show every week. Absolutely. And later on, Jeff will be talking about fashion because, yes, he loves it all. Absolutely. I mean, you got to see me tonight. I'm styling in a uh, Walter White Breaking Bad t-shirt, a Batman hat, and sweatpants. I'm rocking it, man. I'm telling <laughs> Batman and, hat. Wow. And I've got to share. Uh, John's a little jealous. I am drinking... I see Ecto Cooler. I was one of the lucky people to found it in the stores this weekend. So uh, no beer this week. So I'm going to suck down some Ecto Cooler and bring back memories of the kids. You know, if you weren't engaged to an actual female that I know, I would think you're living in your mother's basement. <laughs> <laughs> I'm living in my own basement, man. I got the dream. The stoop studio and the, the bar and all that great stuff, man, right here. I'm not me a kid anymore. Yes. got to stay young forever. You know what I mean? And to our listeners, we have to – it's true. He is engaged to a woman, yet he's drinking ecto-cooler and wearing a Batman hat sitting in his basement. <laughs> you know what, man? It, it's living the dream, man. Living the dream. Forever young. Living the dream. Living the dream. All right, man. Well, it's about that time for our top five list. It's something we do every week. We always come up with something that's pretty much themed uh, with the guests that we have. So tonight, what we're going to do with our top five list is uh, we're going to go with our favorite hip-hop songs. Uh, Jeff, I'm going to let you go with this one. I went all 80s. I want to see what you went with, man. Uh, I went a little bit with, uh, a little bit of everything. Uh, I'm going to go a little more, uh, some 80s, some 90s. I started out a, a tie at number five. Uh, number five, Criminal Minded by Boogie Down Production, the beginning of KRS-One, the late, uh, the late great Scott LaRock. Um, Boogie Down Productions, it's kind of like a public enemy, if you will, uh, the black message, uh, little bit of uh, you know, fighting for yourself and your beliefs, and uh, I always love that song. It's a great album. 
and uh, Criminal Minded, the uh, Boogie Down Productions. Uh, tied with number five, Eminem's Lose Yourself. It's such a great song, and, and it's sung so good, and the, the lyrics, and it's just such a real song about a real guy just going out and getting it. And uh, never a, a huge Eminem fan, but this song to me is just such a big one. I always sing along to it. I love it. Number four, uh, Eric B. and Rakim's Paid Him Full. they got a lot of songs you could choose from. Uh, Eric B. Oh, yeah. is a um, great DJ, and uh, Rakim, the voice, man, he just really, just a smooth delivery. Uh, number three, EPMD's Strictly Business. Um, nice mix, the uh, the I Shot the Sheriff background thing. Um, the, the voices of these guys, a little more uh, monotone, a little more lower keel delivery instead of the guys who were screaming and yelling and hopping around. Uh, real smooth, and, and I love this song, uh, Strictly Business. Number two, and not because of our guest tonight, but uh, number two, Rebel Without a Pause by Public Enemy. Uh, growing up, man, in the mid-'80s, I was a Public Enemy fan, saw him live in 87. Um, and this song, uh, off the seven, second album, uh, just a great song. Probably my favorite rap song of all time. Uh, and number one, just a legendary rap song. One that introduced me to rap and introduced a lot of us to rap. The Sugar Hill Gang and Rapper's Delight. Um, neat, nice. man, kind of like when rap first began. It was uh, funny. It was uh, well-delivered. It was fast at times. It was smart. And uh, kind of paved the way for rap stars today. So, uh, rappers, the light Sugar Hill Gang is my number one. Very nice, very nice. I actually got two ties tonight, man, on my list. Wow. I'm excited about this one, man. Actually, I did have 190s, so I have to uh, actually uh, stop myself there. So, anyway, number five, I got a uh, tie here. Ain't No Half Steppin' by Big Daddy Kane and Top Villain Audio 2. Two songs that, when you listen to it, man, it just really brings the 80s back. Big Daddy Kane, to me, one of the best lyricists back in the 80s. And Top Billing by Audio 2. Just one of those things, man, that you you know you, you either heard in a car passing by on the cassette, or uh, if you went somewhere, you heard it just spinning on a vinyl. It was just always one of those songs that a lot of DJs love to go with. Uh, tie at number four, Scenario, Tribe Called Quest featuring leaders of the new school. And I Ain't No Joke, Eric B. and Rakim. Uh, Scenario, Tribe Called Quest, leaders of the new school. That's just one of those songs, man, that you can still listen to today, and it just pumps you up, man. It's just, it never gets old. And Eric B. and Rakim, like you said, so many different songs we can choose from from those two uh, legendary guys. Uh, Number three, No Sleep Till Brooklyn, Beastie Boys. Really no explanation, it's the Beastie Boys. Number two, If I Rule the World, Curtis Blow. Um, Always have been a huge, huge fan of Curtis Blow. Um, You know, when you look back at hip-hop in the 80s, to me, Curtis Blow is one of those guys in that top five. Um, just a phenomenal dude and a phenomenal uh, rapper. And number one, man, um, just a song that I listen to today, and it just man, it just rings hip-hop to me. And this is, to me, there was nobody better than them. And I have to go with Sucker MCs by Run DMC. Um, wow. right. it's, it's, it's Run DMC, man. Seriously, everything they put out in the 80s, every album they put out, there wasn't one bad song, man. They were one of those groups. And... You know, it's Run DMC, man. You can't go wrong with that, man. So that's my top uh, five with two ties, so we'll go top seven. Um, so just to recap real quick, Jeff's top five, he has a uh, tie at number five himself with Criminal Minded, Boogie Down Productions, and Lose Yourself, Eminem. Number four, Paid in Full, Eric B. and Rakim. Number three, Strictly Business, EPMD. Absolutely awesome. Love it. Uh, number two, Rubble Without a Pause, Public Enemy. Awesome song. And number one, Rapper's Delight, Sugar Hill Gang. Me, tie at number five ain't no half stepping big daddy kane and top billing by audio two 
Uh, tie at number four, Scenario Tribe Called Quest featuring leaders of the new school, and I Ain't No Joke, Eric B. and Rakim. Number three, No Sleep Till Brooklyn, the legendary Beastie Boys. Number two, If I Ruled the World, Curtis, the Godfather Blow. That's not what he's called. That's what I call him. And number one, Sucker MCs, Run DMC, man. You know, here we go again with a list where I could have probably listed about 50, 60, 70 songs, man. Oh, absolutely. I was going down a list and uh, I rocked the bells by LL Cool J. Just about anything, Run DMC. Um, Big Daddy Kane, of course, like you said, fantastic back in the day. The Ultramagnetic MCs had a couple of jams that I liked. There were so many... Uh, so much rap songs, and it's all the beauty of it is they're all different messages. There's some gangster stuff, there's some party stuff, as they call it, there's a straight up hip hop. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff I wanted to put on the list that I didn't get to, and it's tough doing five uh, really challenges us, but uh, I'm happy with my list. I, I like what I got. Yeah, that's why I had to go with two ties. I mean, listen, man, you look at Grandmaster Flash, uh, KRS One. You know, there was a lot of songs I could have put down for KRS-One, Boogie Down Productions, but, you know, I just had to really flip them out. And then you go into the 90s, most of that early 90s, man. And I just, you know, I'm so enamored with hip-hop 80s, man, that I had to at least pick one from that early 80s. And, of course, I jumped out, you know, to Scenario, Tribe Cold Quest. Uh, you know, a war tour, Tribe Cold Quest as well, is another song that I easily could be in my top 10. So, it's just, man, it's just one of those lists, man, where it's just, I wish we had time for a top 30. Absolutely. Yeah, I could have could have easily went on and on and uh, different genres. Uh, right outside of it was uh, Straight Outta Compton because that was such a delivery song. It was like NWA and bringing West Coast um, big into the rap game. And I, I kind of missed that yeah. on my list. And it could have kept going on and on and on. Oh, yeah, absolutely, man. Good, good stuff, man. All right, let's go into a couple of topics of discussion before we're joined by our guest, Keith Shockley of Public Enemy. And writer-producer Ian Holt will be joining us at 8 o'clock Eastern Time in about 20 minutes. So until that time, you get to listen to Jeff and I talk news, events, and throw some opinions out. And first, got to go to something where, man, let me tell you, um, I woke up this morning um, to go to work, and I had a text message at around 5 a.m. from my buddy uh, saying, Oh my God, Joe Perry, uh, legendary guitarist from Aerosmith, collapsed last night playing with the Hollywood Vampires and basically had a heart attack and died and had to be revived in Coney Island, and he's uh, in stable condition in a New York City hospital. Um, you know, Jeff, and, and I hate to say it, but the first thing that jumped into mind was, holy crap, 2016's back again. Yeah, every time you hear something like this, you got to immediately refer to the 2016 curse. Scary. Joe Perry always seemed to be a guy who uh, always seemed fit. Like, uh, obviously, like he's a guy that's got some good tone to his body, and... Uh, Always seemed like he was out there giving it his all, and it's scary when you think a guy like that. Where, yeah, okay, not to be mean, but a guy like Meatloaf is obviously a lot bigger, and uh, for him to pass out is one thing. A guy like Joe Perry, I mean, you don't know his habits, but it's scary. It's scary to think that a guy, you know, who seems to be physically fit like that can just drop one in a second. Yeah. So now, Hollywood Vampires is continuing their tour. If nobody knows who they are, Hollywood Vampires is a super group with Joe Perry the amazing, iconic Alice Cooper, and actor Johnny Depp uh, playing guitar. Uh, they're going on tour still. They're pushing ahead. Now, we got the news about the Aerosmith Farewell Tour, that it could go on for a year or two, and it's going to start sometime next year, and that's going to be the end of Aerosmith. Do you think something like this uh, might not let us have that Aerosmith Farewell Tour? I would think it definitely puts a wrench in the works. Um 
and I'm sure it's got to be in, in Joe Perry's head that this can happen to him again. Um, you're certainly not going to go on tour with Aerosmith without Joe Perry. Uh, and if they do, it's something I'm not interested in at all. But, uh, yeah, it's got to stick in the back of his mind. It may not be the best of ideas, and I think the whole band would agree if he said, look, I don't think I'm uh, ready for this, and I don't think I should be doing it. Yeah, interesting stuff. Well, our uh, best wishes uh, go out to Joe Perry, man. So uh, keep kicking and uh, feel better, dude, and get back on stage, hopefully. We'll see what happens there. Um, let's talk sports real quick. Let me ask you this real quick. I know we we weren't having discussed. Is the home run derby tonight? Home run derby is to is it tonight? Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, it is tonight. It is tonight. Um, yeah, I can double check that to be sure, but yeah, I'm pretty sure it's tonight. Isn't it amazing, man, that I just don't no, care tonight. anymore about the home run derby? Exactly. It is tonight. The All Star game is tomorrow. I I lost my dates because I'm looking at ESPN. It is tonight. Um. Looking at the lineup, I got to tell you, it looks like a, uh, a Giancarlo Stanton runaway. I mean, I don't know. These guys aren't hitters outside of Stanton. It should be a blowout. Who's in there? Uh, I got to get you the list real quickly. I was looking at it earlier. I know it's Stanton. I know it's uh, Todd Frazier. Um, oh, he could jack it. Yeah, but I mean, like, none of these guys really have. I'm going to get it right now. I'll get the list for you. Uh, it's. Um, Mark uh, Trumbo, uh, Corey Sager. Okay, he's got Rob- power. Yeah, Robinson Cano. Was, I don't know. That's years back for me. Yeah, that's, uh, weird. that's weird. Giancarlo Stanton, Duvall, Myers, uh, Frazier, and uh, my dark horse, uh, Carlos Gonzalez. Cargo. I like me some cargo. There's a guy that belongs to a winning team. Let me ask you this. What can they do to make the Home Run Derby exciting again? Because years ago, man, that was like the thing to watch was the Home Run Derby. So much more than the actual All-Star game. I used to love the The thing that kills it, and no offense, but Chris Berman and the constantly back, 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 back. After like 70 times, it loses its luster. It was good. I guess you got to get guys in there with a good story like the year Josh Hamilton won it. Um you know, there, there's nothing. It's just the guys swinging up balls and hit them over the fence, which is exciting. But after a while, I think it just needs to be quicker. Uh, I think it needs to be maybe five outs instead of ten outs. And, uh, you know, maybe make these guys take every pitch if we're going to go ten outs. Hmm. Maybe it's turning into the old home run derby show, man, from the 60s. Yeah, there you go. I like it. That was pretty cool, man. I used to love watching the reruns of that on ESPN Classic back in the 90s. Oh, man. Now, that was some good stuff, man. be interesting to see what they do with that. They got to change it up, man. Hopefully, they'll change it up soon. Uh, let's go over to basketball, man. And here we go, man. Loyalty means something sometimes with certain people as San Antonio Spurs power forward Tim Duncan has retired officially today after 19 years in the NBA and with the San Antonio Spurs. It... <laughs> Here's another guy, man, a face of his team, like Kobe Bryant to the Lakers, a guy who's a first ballot Hall of Famer who's going to go with absolutely no question about it. Every single person that's voting is going to vote for him. If nobody votes for him, they should be just smacked in the head. But (laughs) is this a completely different NBA now without Kobe and without Timmy D? It's a uh, changing of the guard, you know, um, no pun intended. 
But uh, it's time for some new guys, and, and hats off to Tim Duncan. Um, Got to figure he knew he was going to do it, but he didn't want to go toe-to-toe with Kobe on a retirement tour, and maybe he's not the spotlight kind of guy that does a retirement tour. Um, he merited it. He earned it. The guy was fantastic and uh, won a lot of NBA titles as a classy guy and uh, a great ball player. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a little change. I mean, uh, like you said, guys like Dirk are going to be out of the way soon and Garnett and a lot of these guys are going to be fading off and it's time for new guys. And that's that way in every sport. You look at football, uh, Peyton Manning is walking away. Tom Brady's going to be here soon. So, again, you got to change it up. And that's the way sports works. Every uh, 10, yeah. 15 years, it's time for a whole new uh, group of faces. Yeah. Now, do you think we're going to end up seeing – another Tim Duncan, another Kobe Bryant, in the respect that they will be with their team for an entire career? Wow. Um, it's a great question. It's going to be really, really, really scarce. you got to have a guy that is phenomenal uh, in every aspect, um, has got to play great, has got to be willing to be a team player, take certain amounts of money, be a face of a franchise. It's rare nowadays because everybody just wants to be a superstar and get money. That even the great LeBron James, everybody said he's a Cleveland guy, will be there forever, made his move, considering a move again. It's really hard nowadays. There's so much money. There's big cities versus little cities. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, it's going to be a while before you see guys like that. Yeah. Well, Dwayne Wade, now he's in Chicago. Carmelo Anthony, who was supposed to stay with the Denver Nuggets his whole career, he's with the Knicks. It's yeah, it's, it's crazy, man. It's crazy. It. I remember years ago, um, and, and, you know, Kobe and Timmy are the last guys for it now. It was amazing when you had a guy that just stayed with your team, man, because you just always loved him and followed his career. Now it's like every time you start to like somebody on a team, they're gone after like two, three seasons. It's insane. Yeah, even the legend of the game, I mean, my all-time favorite guy is Michael Jordan. And even he, he ended up in Washington, the strangest of places. Well, that was his own fault. At the time, yeah. he was part owner of the Wizards, and he said, oh, let me come out of retirement and play for the Wizards because he wanted to put asses in the seats. Because nobody was watching, watching the Wizards at that point. <laughs> yeah, but still, I mean, it's, it's, it's just weird. I mean, it's like uh, Namath retiring as a Ram and Steve Carlton yeah. and, as a Cleveland Indian, crazy stuff like that. Yeah, never, I don't know, man. It, it, it'll be interesting to see exactly – what happens um, with him, but uh, with the league? But it'll be it'll be nice to see some uh, not only players but teams having loyalty to their players as well, man. Those days are long gone, it seems. Um, Got to ask you this, man. Awesome video I saw today. Buster Posey, catcher for the San Francisco Giants, throwing a ball at Jake Peavy. Jake Peavy not looking, and it just went straight into his glove. Did you check out that video? I did. It's it, it's just one of the strangest things I've ever seen, and. <laughs> It's just hard to explain, like, what the hell he was doing and, and what Posey was doing. and uh, it, I don't know. Give me your opinion. I'm, I'm in, like, a, I'm like in a I, I honestly thought when I first watched it, I thought I was watching, you know that video, and I can't remember who it is, but the guy hits the foul ball, and he turns around, and he grabs it before it smashes the lady in the face who's interviewing him. It, yeah. I thought it was for a commercial. <laughs> I thought it was fake. Little did I know it actually happened in a game. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty wild. If anything, it uh, gives PV a little limelight. Um, you know, it, it's, it shows something for Posey. Man, it's just a, a one in a million shot he couldn't possibly do again. Well, he might be able to do it again. This guy's probably the best catch in the world right it, now. It's it's interesting, man. It's interesting. All right, man. Let's uh, 
real quick with uh, with this. UFC just had a historic UFC 200. Brock Lesnar comes in, just just decimates Mark Hunt. And then Misha Tate just gets slaughtered by Amanda Nunes in the first round. I mean, seriously, there was no chance for Tate. It showed that, hey, she shouldn't have been champion. And then just a few hours later, the UFC is sold for $4 billion, man. $4 billion. Um, you know me. I'm not a huge UFC guy. Yeah. Certainly I'm not really a, a Dana White guy. And here comes this massive payday. Um and to me, it, it, it's scary because you don't really know where it's going to go. Does it get all commercialized now? Is it a bunch of suits trying to change things up? I think it hurts it. I don't think it's a great move. I mean, obviously, it's a great move business-wise uh, for White and everybody involved. But um, yeah. I'm confused about the future of it. I don't know where it's going to bring it. I think it's a downward slope. Now, I didn't get to read the specs of everything. Does this mean Dana White's officially gone out of the UFC and we don't have to put up with him anymore? Well, I, I kind of hope so. That might actually maybe make me watch it. I, I assume that he was the the brainchild of it. I assume a sale would mean he's out unless they leave him on as a as a manager or a promoter or something. You know, because I mean, it's been his baby. Um, a lot of people, I'm sure, like to see him go, and that's part of the reason why I really don't watch. I've always been a boxing pure, so this doesn't really tickle me. So I, I'm going to read into it. I got to see what exactly this means for the future of, of UFC. Yeah, I don't know, man. I. I... I used to watch UFC back in the early 90s when you had the, you know, the Royce Gracies, the Dan Severins, the Ken Shamrocks, uh, Big John McCarthy, you know, all of those guys, the Tank Abbots. And, you know, to me, it was such a different, different uh, animal back then. But now, I don't know, man. You know, I try to watch it here and there, but it just is what it is, man, I guess. But it'll be interesting to see what happens with this new investment group buying the UFC for $4 billion. Wow. All right, man. I've got to ask you about this. Are you running around your neighborhood and have you caught a Pikachu yet? <laughs> uh, no, I have not. I have seen it. I'm not doing it. Um, I, I don't know. The only thing I gathered from this, and I said it today at work, and then I read something on Twitter that made me laugh. If anything, they got people out walking around and exercising at least. I, That's all I can make I, of it. I don't know. It's, listen, when it first happened, I said, oh, interesting. But then it just took on a whole life of its own, man, where people are saying, hey, man, I got all these people showing up at my house all night, all day, because somehow their house is in the game as a gym or a store or whatever. And it's starting to really mess with people's lives now from that aspect. WWE headquarters in Stanford, Connecticut is a Pokemon gym. So how many people are going to be showing up from that area to the WWE headquarters and just hanging out in the WWE parking lot? You know they're not going to like that. You know cops are going to be cold. You know? Yeah. And now that's going to have cops away from doing what they, you know, more important things. And then you have people who are going to be calling the cops because, hey, I got four nerds sitting in my driveway and they're playing Pokemon because somehow my, you know, my, my house is a is a layer for uh, Charmander. It's it's interesting, man. And now we're hearing these reports, uh, especially coming out of Philly, man. I don't know if you watched the news at all today, Jeff, but somehow, some way, people are putting beacons in the game, luring people to a spot, and then robbing them. Yeah, absolutely. And you knew that was only a matter of time. Um, I don't know. Oh, I'm man. gonna uh, I'm gonna 
find uh, you know me, I'll find Mia Khalifa's house and knock on the door and say, you know you got a Pokemon in here. But, wow, that's X-rated when you think about it, Pokemon. All right, let's go on to something else. But, <laughs> but seriously, yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, it's a matter of time before people use this against other people. And you can't be that already naive, happened. I mean, Not even a couple of days yeah. into it, it's happening already. Of course. Here, like here's said, my I mean, thing. So, go ahead. It, and, and, it, and it blew my mind. I'm driving with my wife today. We're going to the store to get some stuff for the baby. And we're passing this big park. And I swear to God, we saw about 15 to 20 people in all separate parts of the, the, of the park looking down at their phone, playing this damn Pokemon game. They're looking at trees with it and everything. And the first thought in my mind is, holy crap, when is it going to happen? And I'm sure it's going to be soon if it hasn't happened already, that some moron is looking at their phone while crossing the street and gets jammed up by a car. <laughs> there was a joke of that uh, on a Facebook pic where they showed this huge traffic accident. They said, you know, it's already begun. It was a Pokemon joke. But not only that, I mean, people, God forbid, falling into a ditch, falling off a cliff. I mean, <laughs> who knows? It, where's this going to end? People are so brainwashed nowadays. It's unbelievable. You could be listening addicted, to the soup. Addicted, man. Addicted. They're so obsessed with a damn game. Man, I, I got get it. To work. I got guys at work walking in my office. I had a guy walk in my office today, and he says, look what I found in here. And it was nervous, a little mouse or rat, whatever the hell that thing is. <laughs> whatever. It, it's not my thing, and uh, I'm already addicted to uh, – I play tap sports baseball on my phone like crazy. But not like this. Not not that thing. Listen, I, I, I ain't going to lie. I play games every once in a while on my phone. I have the new NBA Live oh. mobile app, and I think it's great. Um, How is it? But I'm not sitting wanna... there it, – it's it's great, man. Seriously, download it on your phone because you and I could could hook up on it and play. It's it's an absolutely phenomenal game. I love it. There's all these little things where you have to do certain dunks and certain shots to get points and coins and cards, and you have to collect cards to have all these different teams you can have. It's a really cool game. I, I absolutely love it. I think EA did a phenomenal, phenomenal job with it on the mobile phone. But that's something you play for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and then you're yeah. done for the rest of the day, or you play again a little bit at night. This is the stuff that people, man, they're running around and slamming into trees, getting hit by cars to try to find a little a little Pikachu, Charmander, you know, Wuzzle Wuzzle. I don't even know some of the names, but it's 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 interesting, man. It's real interesting. Oh my god! Uh, there was a uh, funny picture uh, my fiance put it on Facebook of uh, this red beat up van and said. Uh, Pikachu inside. <laughs> it was just hilarious. Yeah. Like you can imagine. That's going to be next. You know, and, and, and this is not for them trying to lure kids now, as we heard today. They're trying to lure 30, 40, 50, 60 year old people playing this game. And they say, hey, you know what? You come to this spot and you get a free Pokemon. And then they're getting jumped and they're getting their stuff stolen from them. <laughs> <laughs> we're laughing. I mean, it, it's sick, but we're laughing. But it's sad. Laughing, it's, it's sad, it's but it's funny. funny. You have to know this is going to happen. And it happened that fast. Oh yeah. All right, well, you know what? I think it's time to bring the noise, man. What do you think? I'm all about it. I've been waiting for this for uh, weeks, so uh, let's do it. All right. Well, joining us right now are our, our very special guest tonight, Key Shockley of Public Enemy and Ian Holt. What's going on, fellas? Hey, guys. Hey, hey guys. How you doing? Good, good, good. It's well, great to first be back off, on radio. The best thing I, you can do in your house, call in. You don't have to wear pants. It's great. <laughs> well, I got on pants. I don't know about what you're doing at seven, I got eight o'clock. Shorts on with the patio door open. 
I know that kind of show, but fly in the breeze. Oh man. Yeah. Well, guys, seriously, thank you uh, for taking the time out to join us tonight. Um, seriously, just you know, you know, super huge to have you on here. So we'll jump right into it. Um, first thing, Keith, let me ask you this, man. When uh, when Public Enemy first started, you guys wanted to break away from the party rap game and go with you know more of a message to be spokesman for the black culture. Um, if P didn't do this, uh, do you think the group would have been as huge as they are today? Um. I I don't I don't know. Um depend upon how good our how good our party rats was. But I don't I mean that <laughs> that wasn't our thing. <laughs> you know, that, that as 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 DJs, yes that was. But as, you know, making rap records, it was uh, yeah. it was it was it was something well mainly it was something that we wanted to do based on the fact that we had to be different. One thing we understood mm-hmm. was marketing. And my brother was a genius at that. So while yeah. everybody was doing the party rap, Dragon Bowls, we were like, well, we need something that's going to stand out. It's always about mm-hmm. being diverse and what, you, what you're going to do to stand out. So, as you know, when we did the first album, <laughs> nobody really liked it. <laughs> no, that's, that's true. Well, I, 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 the white boys liked it. I understand. <laughs> no, it took a, well, I mean, but it took a no. It took a minute for that first album. I mean, the first album was you know it was a, it came out a year after it was done. You know, yeah. hip hop culture changes every three months. It was kind of old, and you know, it, it was it was just. It was kind of lame. It was good. It was good. It was good when we was doing it at first. Yeah, it was hot, but a year <laughs> later, sitting around, <laughs> like oh, this ain't good no more. <laughs> you know. Yeah, well, it was. Funny, it was interesting. You know, I I was in college when uh, when Public Enemy first started hitting. I think I I came on board right as um, Do the Right Thing came out, and we were all Spike Lee nuts because I was at NYU Film School and Spike Lee. That just graduated not too long ago, and he's come yeah. back to speak. So we ran to see the movie, and the, and all of a sudden we see this hot babe dancing up and down naked to fight the power. And I was like, I was almost more interested in the song, and that's crazy for a, for a horny college kid, you know. And and when I started listening to Public Enemy, you know, I, I all of a sudden I got politically plugged in. Who knew, you know, a few years later we were gonna hook up, but and you know become friends and partners, but. You know that was crazy. It changed my whole life. Public Enemy. You mean you're trying to hook up with you trying to hook up with my friend Rosie? I'm still trying to hook up with your friend Rosie. Now she's always telling me, "My eyes are up here. My eyes are up here." (laughs) Now I have to ask this because I've known Ian for a while, and of course, uh, you know, pretty much everybody (laughs) knows Public Enemy. How the hell did you guys have a relationship? Oh boy. Me and Ian? <laughs> me and Ian? Yeah. Yeah. Um I don't even, I I don't know. I thought you could answer that. I'll tell you. <laughs> I, I don't know how we got a relationship. It, a, we knew the we knew the story. same people. It's a wild story. <laughs> Public enemy went to college basically with Dr. Dre from your MTV raps. East Coast Dr. Yeah. Dre. Dr. Dre. Well actually I, well hold on, Let, let's see who's in Public Enemy. Chuck Chuck and Dre was in the same was at at Delphi University. So that was started from there, but then, then now Ian can come into the Right, and they grew up with a guy, great guy, Ozzy Gibson. 
Ozzy Gibson is like a Renaissance man. He does everything. Yeah. And he was hooked up with a fraternity brother of mine's best friend trying to do when crisscross was big, chant reggae version of crisscross that my fraternity brother's friend was investing in. And I was doing a, my first screenplay on vampires at the time, and Ozzy asked to read it. He loved it. And I was getting ready to go to Romania to restart researching Dracula. And this was the mm -hmm. same time that Who's the Man with Dr. Dre and Ed Lover was coming out, and they had a yeah. deal pending with Joe Dante and Universal to do remake the Abbott Costello movies. The first one was Buck Privates. And they needed someone to come up with an idea for Abbott Costello and me Frankenstein. So they, Ozzy brought me in to meet Dre. Now, a little backstory. I hate rap music at this time. I hated it. <laughs> and I hated Yo! MTV raps because they took Ricky Rackman off the air, and I'm a heavy metal guy. <laughs> From, and I couldn't stand Dr. Dre, and I loved it. But I didn't tell Ozzy this because I wanted the job. So Ozzy brings me in to meet Dre at his office, and Dre looks at me and says, so what do you think of Yo! MTV raps? And, and uh, I don't answer at first because I don't know what to say, and everyone gets really quiet, and I go, I hate it. And, and he looks at me, and I look at him, and, we, and everyone's just standing around me. I'm the only white guy in the room, and, and no one knows how to react. And then Dre just lets out this big belly laugh, and he says, you must be a heavy metal dude. And I was like, yep, and that's how we became friends. And I pitched um, uh, Dr. Dre and Ed Lover meet Blackula, <laughs> and they loved it. <laughs> and uh, then Who's the Man opened on the day of the L.A. riots, and they made no money yeah. on the West Coast, so they dumped the uh, Abbott Costello movies and the movie they were working on, Book Privates, became In the Army with Paulie Shore. And Dre feels bad, so he invites me to come work for him at Yo! MTV Raps. So after shooting one day, we go to we go to a studio to pick up this guy who's a friend of his, and Keith gets in the car. And I have no idea who he is, and we and that's really how we became friends. We just started hanging out because the first couple of days we knew each other, we didn't know who each other were. And then I found out he was Public Enemy. I was like, get out of here. <laughs> He's a producer of Public Enemy. You're the Bomb Squad? Just mm -hmm. a normal, cool... With my parents. They were all hanging out together <laughs> at my house. <laughs> I mean, it was really... That's hilarious. We didn't know who each other were. That is hilarious. I, I do those kind of things. I get picked up by straight <laughs> people. <laughs> <laughs> Either Walking that or having like, following you. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and it's oh, easy man. for film people and music people to hook up because when you film people, when you film people, the first thing you say is, "I got a script," you know. <laughs> but it, it's easy for film people and music people just to hang out because they're not, you know, no one's pitching a script to each other or or music or I got a I got I got a uh, I got a demo for you. <laughs> yeah, right. Jeez, I still get those. <laughs> The whole Dr. Dre Lover meets Blackula thing, that's actually a cool pitch, man. I, that that would have been a good movie that I would have loved to have seen. Yep. Unfortunately, we it, unfortunately, it was right at the time of Rodney King. Yeah. I liked Who's the well, Man. Who's the Man was a great movie. Who's the Man was – I went to the well, movie theater to see that. That was a, that was a great movie. Yeah. It was a good, good, really good. It was really good, man. I was kind of – I was impressed. Great movie, great soundtrack. Great soundtrack. Mm -hmm. Yep. Oh, the right, so, Keith, Keith, Keith is doing the soundtrack mm -hmm. to uh, our movies now, too. Uh, our next one, Unhinged, next horror movie. And, uh, you know, it's a good pedigree. I mean, he did Juice and all that stuff. I mean, he's got more. You go you go into Keith's house, he's got more platinums on the wall than, 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 than pictures. 
<laughs> I got some. Like, they all over the place. I got a few. <laughs> I got a few. They, they, they don't make those anymore these days. <laughs> I got relics. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, man! So let's get back to uh, you know talking about the music real quick. Keith, uh, Public Enemy, you know, always was starting trends. Very influential from the whole rock rap mix with uh, you know doing Bring the Noise with Anthrax, which I absolutely mm-hmm. love to the more serious messages in, in hip hop. Mm-hmm. Is it hard to be so innovative? And how does that come about? Is it just ideas? Is it hard work? Is it a mixture um, of everything? Well, I mean, that when we came in, that was at a time where this whole hip-hop thing was experimental. Nobody was an expert. And they just let you do what you do because the labels didn't know how to market it. They was like, well, you guys got it. We just know people like it, but we don't know what to, what to do with it. So mm-hmm. they actually let, you know, that's why Def Jam was kind of successful because they let, you know, Def Jam do what they do, you know, um, mm-hmm. Uh, uh, between that and 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 the, our greatest friends in the music industry back then was the bootleggers. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. the bootleg, even though they bootlegging our records, they was in places that the record labels at that time didn't know about, didn't understand it, and would not go into these places. So mm-hmm. they wouldn't be up on the up on the corner of, of, of up in the Bronx on Jerome Avenue. You know, where are in a record store on Jerome Avenue because they wouldn't know those. They only knew the big record stores. Like at the time, you had the 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 Wiz, um, uh, Record World. They knew those stuff. They knew the stuff that was in the malls and you know the big record shop. But it's the, it was the small guy, the mom and pop stores that yeah. was in a hood that was kind of hardcore. But you know, it's kind of hardcore if you were looking from the media perspective. But that's how we you know it's where we live. So, you know, mm-hmm. bootleggers was in places like the swap meets and stuff like that and, and the flea markets and on the street corners. You know, there people come by and see like, oh, this is that rap group. Oh, this is, oh, God, Boogie Down Production. They got it on a CD and they're, they might be on, somebody might be on Fordham Road up in the Bronx. And, wow, I can get that where all the record stores are mom and pops. You know, there wasn't, yeah. a, wasn't a record world up there. You know, so mm-hmm. that's you know, that's one of the, the biggest things then that, you know, the artist actually was, was telling the labels where it needed to be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that, then it just took off. And it, I, so now let me ask you this, because a lot of people talk about today with the whole, you know, streaming of the music and how it's hurting the music business stuff. Back then, like you said, with the bootleggers, and there was a lot of stuff going on back then. I mean, we all remember it. To me, if, mm-hmm. you know, I felt like back then with the bootleg, and it was easier to find out about new groups, new music, yep. than it was to mm-hmm. go into those mom and pop places. Yeah, well, it was because you had to find a mom and pop because the bootleg was just sitting on the corner, like you know, in a in a in a shopping lane. They know everybody's shopping, yeah. or a lot of people is walking down. They're sitting right there on the corner. You have to find mm-hmm. the mom and pop's record store, you know, because there wasn't a lot of them. It wasn't like there was tons of them. It was only just a you know, a handful, you know, but the bootleggers are sitting right there. You know, all right, it cut into our sales, but it it yeah. it promoted the artists. Like you said, you, you found a lot of artists that you wouldn't know about. Like you wouldn't know yeah. about a three times dope. You know what I'm saying? You bootleggers yeah. would have that and at that time anything that was said that was looked like a rap group, you bought it. 
<laughs> because and they gave it wasn't on radio. Too. You know, they were like, they were like, you know, the guys said, "Hey, this is good. Try this." Yeah, you know, they, yeah. you know, they, cause they, well, they, 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 they try to make their money. They're hitting you five dollars a CD or five dollars a cassette tape. <laughs> you know, they're like, "Hey, we got this. You got this one. So go ahead." So it, it kind of gave the the record labels an idea and a base of where to go. You know, because they, you know, like let's be straight. There's there was no record stores in Roosevelt. And it was like no. where I lived at, and Freeport's our neighboring town. Uh, Uniondale's another neighboring town. I mean, we had a couple of record stores in Hempstead, which was like the main hub of a of where we lived at. Everybody would go there to shop and buy clothes and stuff like that. You would go to those places. But other than that, you know, the bootleggers is on, you know, on our Nassau Road, like Nassau Road where we lived at. It's like, you know, we got like delis and stuff like that and little small stores and little things like that. They're sitting out there selling, like, I got the new so-and-so. You know, I got this new, uh, you know, I heard, I got this new um, uh, um, uh, uh, DJT's record, you know, uh, Fantasy yeah. 3. I got them. Check that out. So you start to learn about that. And, and the, the regular audience know about it. But, you know, us in the business, we know all the new groups that was coming out. You know. Yeah. Well, so it, we it, know was, it was interesting. It was, it was kind of. You know, I'm not that far from where you grew up. I lived in Queens, and I grew up there, and, you know, okay. we had a couple of record stores. But, you know, you went into the record stores back then, and you weren't going in there and seeing Public Enemy stuff. You were going in there and seeing the best of Kenny Loggins or back then the 80s freestyle mm-hmm. with, you know, Cynthia and Johnny O, George Lamont. That's the stuff that was being pushed out. You didn't walk in there and see all this stuff up front and center. So, you know, to be able to get those bootlegs to buy it, like you said, for five bucks on a cassette – listen to it, and then start handing it off to people. I mean, seriously, probably all the millions of Public Enemy fans, I would say 85% of your fans probably found you guys on a bootleg. Yeah. Well, it it was there, and, you know, coming – we was we was kind of – like us being signed to Def Jam, we was kind of lucky because we yeah. didn't have to go the, the indie route. You know, you got to understand, Def Jam started out as an independent label. So mm-hmm. – um, Tila Rock and Jazzy J was independent, and, you know, the DJs and all the DJs always look for new records. But when we came out, it was kind of different. We are now we're signed to Columbia or, or signed to Def Jam, and Def Jam has a, 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 a production deal with Columbia. Mm-hmm. So now they're being marketed by the majors. So now, yeah, of course, you walk in, you'll see us. We'll be in a record store, but you wouldn't notice because rap wasn't that far. Rap was a fad at the time. Oh, this is not going to really last. They knew it made money, but they didn't really know how it made money. So mm-hmm. now it's like we're in the store. You didn't know about a public enemy. You know, we had to do our own promotions. Yeah, we used to throw our own parties as before mm-hmm. we got started and, and perform our own parties. He was party. Mm. It's a whole story to this. We were party promoters, and and coming from Long Island, you know, if you wasn't coming from anywhere from the five boroughs, excluding Staten Island, because you know Staten Island was <laughs> Staten Island was considered something something else. That was the <laughs> I country. Like another thing, but if you didn't come. Yeah, you know, the country. If you didn't come from basically <laughs> like the four boroughs, you come from the four boroughs in New York City. You wasn't considered. Uh, at that time, you you wasn't even considered a real situ- a real group or a real rap group or artist, whatever, because the yeah. the four the four barrels 
had it on lock. You know, you had yeah. to come from out of the Bronx, you know, or or you was basically trying to come out of Brooklyn, but mainly most of it was the Bronx. You had the Brooklyn scene popping in, but the Brooklyn scene was a whole different animal, you know, coming out. And then, uh, and then the Queens scene was more so was more so than all of that. So mm-hmm. um, that was the whole thing of, about Long Island. While we had to, you know, we had to prove ourselves, man. Oh, man, it was a man. it was a war. Be- it was a war. It was just like in the hip hop world, those guys in the Bronx didn't consider Long Island. That's like y'all are suburbs. Y'all don't know nothing about street life. Y'all don't know, y'all don't do this. Yo, know, we you know, we out here living a hard life, man. It's like y'all y'all got grass colored TVs in your bedroom. Y'all don't know what that's like. <laughs> y'all don't know what it's like living living in an apartment, a two bed apartment, and then there's a and there's six members in the family. <laughs> and two bedroom apartments. So you know what that's like. But my relatives yeah. is my mom's is from Harlem, so we knew all about it. And mainly yeah. a lot of people that lived on Long Island was was my was I'm gonna call it immigrants. <laughs> immigrants from the city. <laughs> they just wanted immigrants to move from the out to a better life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, immigrants yeah. from the boroughs, you know. Yeah. So it, yeah. it was it was that kind of thing with us. That's funny. That's funny. So let's talk a little bit about this uh, documentary. And uh, Ian, I'm going to direct this at you. What got you interested in doing this documentary? And how did you, Keith, Chuck D, and the rest of the crew get this project off the floor and running? Well, it it, it started, you know, a lot of times with conversations. You know, about we we'd hear something. Someone would, you know, they, I guess the easiest way to say it is a lot of people confuse pro-black with anti-white and and that's some of the negative stuff, the mis- so misinterpretation true. of the message. Mm-hmm. And we started mm-hmm. talking about, you know, being pro-black also means being pro-minority, pro-lower class, pro-poor, pro-lower middle class. It- it's all connected, you know. Mm-hmm. And we started talking about how the, the you know, the um, what you, they call now gangster rap, but as you heard in, you know, straight out of Compton, it was political rap. You know, I mean, um, yeah. a reality rap, and then the political rap. How it led to you know uh, people registering to vote and and getting involved politically, which first to, to uh, Clinton and then to Obama. And we started talking about how it all got started. Uh, Keith, Keith and Chuck have been trying to do this, had this in the back of their mind for a while, but because of the 30th anniversary coming up, mm-hmm. they were looking for a place. To to bring the project, and it just so happened that we signed uh, my new company, Old House Productions, signed our distribution deal, and um, we were doing a. We had told Keith about the new horror movie we were doing, asked him to do the music, and he said, "Hey, you guys got any, any interest in a documentary? Do you guys do documentaries too?" And uh, we started talking about it, and we realized because we're friends, because we know each other, and we know each other's story, it makes it a lot easier to do it. We jumped on board, and the response has just been incredible. And I, I'm i so grateful to Chuck and Keith and, and an old public enemy for entrusting me with, you know, their legacy, which is really what this is. It's going to set the record straight, uh, this documentary, from Roosevelt to Reagan, Spectrum City and the Rise of Public Enemy. That's the title. Yeah. That's the working title right now. And it's yeah. it, it's going to set the record straight. What they're all about, why they became about, how they became um, 
politically motivated. Um, mm-hmm. And it's also the history of hip-hop. Because remember, they're like, they were doing this like 15 years before N.W.A. I mean, they started, I mean, if, for people that don't know, I mean, it's basically, if you've ever seen The Warriors, yeah. that really yeah. happened. That really happened. There was a guy that was assassinated. Was that that's that Cyrus in the beginning that wanted to join all the gangs in New York, yeah. and he was assassinated, and that led to a basically a gang war. And the community leaders came in and tried to broker a peace, and the gangs started DJing basically, became DJ crews and bat- had DJ battles instead of turf battles, and that led to. It's moving from the boroughs onto the island where Keith and, and his brother Hank and all those guys started DJ, DJing as a crew called Spectrum. And they started going around and playing on different gigs. And then eventually, this was even before there was a thing called rapping or MCs, and that led to scratching and all the stuff, all the tricks. And meanwhile, the radio DJs on the, on the, playing the black records on the uh, black radio stations were were rhyming to introduce the record, so that led to MCs being being in the DJ parties, and that's how they brought in Chuck, and that's how Spectrum City was originally formed as a promotion. They did promotion, they did shows with LL Cool J and the Fat Boys and all this stuff, and they were promoting it. And then they were on Delphi Radio, WBAU. And uh, it took off from there. So their story is the history of hip-hop. So we, we're not only telling for prosperity and for all the young kids out there how to do it, but how they did it, but the whole history of the music. Mm. So now you were talking about how this is all done before NWA, and, and we all know that. So after seeing the success of last year's uh, you know, NWA film, is that the kind of energy that you're hoping gets behind this documentary so people can see not only, you know, the politicalness of this, but also the history of it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the documentary is just the first step. We have a whole yeah, well, plan. Yeah, we have a – yeah, we, but we don't have drama like that. <laughs> That's yeah. what everybody – we, we was nice guys. We didn't, we didn't have drama yeah. like that. You know, yeah. we didn't sell dope in the corner in the streets to get to where we were. Nope. We had regular jobs. We had suburb jobs, worked for the county. We took our job money and put it into our business. Mm-hmm. So, see, this is a different side. That was everybody thinks, you know, everybody thinks, well, it, it, it's a, it was, it's how we was raised. But everybody thinks it's about the hustle street game. We knew every, we had friends that was doing that. You know, hey, it's hustling, but we never, we knew, we knew the consequences of if you deal in that world. Yeah. So we didn't deal in that world. We knew that. You know, it, it was it was even though people would say Long Island, oh, it's kind of soft. No, it wasn't that soft because you can still get caught up in the things. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of people in Long Island that don't that don't realize the the, the underground world of what's happening on Long Island. You know, and, mm-hmm. unless you're in that world, but throwing parties in the streets, you learn you you learn all those people because you're throwing a party and. At the time, where people was kind of like, like economics is kind of different now than it was back in the seventies and eighties. You know, people was looking like, shoot, I'll wait for them to throw a party and then stick them up after the end of the party. <laughs> so Damn. you know, we had that kind of that that world. You know, yeah. but us, yeah. you know, we didn't we didn't have to worry about 
We wasn't hustling in the streets. Like I said, we took our regular. Me and, me and Chuck had a job. <laughs> we had a job at Sears changing tires. <laughs> you know, we had we had jobs. But, you know, we did cool things. Like my brother, we'll get it. Like, you know, that was like changing tires. So if somebody needs tires in the crew, fix their cars. We'd go take old tires that they were throwing away, put them on. And it was pretty good tires. You know, some people use their tires for the mileage. But my brother worked at Record World. So mm. that's where we would get a lot of records from. You know, yeah. we knew the records that was coming in. Oh, wow, these, these certain, you know, certain records. But this was before hip-hop was hip-hop, you know. This was like, you know, you just got hot records. You know, then, we, you know, then he worked at this place called, um, uh, 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 it was the Light and Sound Company. I can't remember the name of it. I can't remember the name of it. It was in Hempstead. And they actually built speakers in there. And it was an English company because they owned, uh, back at the days, you know, the Reeboks tape recorders. Yeah. They owned Reeboks. Yes. And which Reeboks mm-hmm. turned around and turned into Studio, which all the studios were using for two-inch tape. So my brother worked for them. And they used to give us and lend us sound equipment to go out and test them out in the streets. Wow. So we stayed in the business to keep, we found jobs that helped our business. See, that's the different side. You know, nobody sees that side. And this is why it was important for you know, at least us to do this documentary. Um, and I've been trying to get this done because I've seen a lot of documentaries on, on about the group. But they'll mm-hmm. touch on the stuff that we did in the beginning. But they don't understand the reason why the group was so successful is because of the things that we did in the beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, we was our own promoters. Chuck was a, Chuck was our graphic designer. He designed all the flyers after he he fired my brother from doing all of that. So he took <laughs> over he gave it. He took over that deal. And then we would sit around in the streets just like they have street clubs promoting records. We would promote our parties like that. So everything that they was doing then we was doing now. Mixtapes. I was making mixtapes in, in nineteen seventy six. So, you know, now mixtapes are done for artists to promote their stuff. But we was actually making mixtapes. <laughs> Us guys back there was actually making mixtapes, you know, so we didn't yeah, have duplicated huh. machines. So it was it was it was you know, taking with your hard earned money. That's what we looked at it. Our hard earned money and do that because other guys wanted to run in the streets and, you know, do and do stick ups and whatever they want to sell their drugs and all that. So we it's like we ain't Plus, we had too much education. It's even more of that. It's even more than just their story. It's the story of Roosevelt and and policies in Washington. I mean, Mm -hmm. Keith's family and Chuck's family moved out from the boroughs to, like, little white suburbia to get a better shot at life, better job, own a house, and do all the things that everybody does. And Roosevelt, Mm -hmm. you know, was pretty much a white community back then. And then you have... You know, the media, which has all these negative portrayals of blacks that scare people, you know, like if you watch movies in the 70s, I mean, you never see a, a positive image. You, you look, at, look at French Connection, you know, or any oh, of yeah. movies. You never see a positive image. We didn't have that then. I mean, the first mm-hmm. positive image we saw of a black person was Shaft, right? <laughs> you know, on TV with the TV series. that only lasted a season. So, you know, these images created a white flight when blacks moved in for the suburbs. And they created all these 
social programs that were funded by the federal government, which allowed for free summer uh, camp programs where they had African-American studies, and they learned all about politics and the history of African-Americans in America. And then you had this community center that, that taught them DJing. It taught Griff, you know, martial arts. Uh, and it and it and it you know it was a a place where kids could be you know safe. Yeah, well, I mean, it was it was a place where you know you gotta understand. I don't get too much into that. It was a place where parents were like get out of the house, yeah. <laughs> go do something constructive. <laughs> you know what yeah. I'm saying? It's like you know, and yeah. then you know, we came up in time we didn't have a lot. We we saw things and we liked to do it, so we did the best we could, but not having a lot. But it was more like. You know, we were having fun, man. We didn't, we didn't know paying attention to all of this. Yes, we were learning a bunch of things, you know. And it was free. It was free. It was free, you know. We... Oh, God. And then, and then Reagan comes in with trickle-down economics, oh, which right, in one yeah. sense saved the country, but had, you know, from 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 the, from the from Nixon and Vietnam and, and Ford and Carter, remember Ford telling New York to go to hell when we needed money? And New York mm-hmm. was falling apart, and in one sense it saved the country in a way, but it also had terrible effects on communities because all those social programs were gone. There was no money for schools anymore. All of that was cut. So you went from, you know, uh, a 73% college rate to a 63% dropout rate, and from a 23% school breakfast and lunch program to an 83% school breakfast and lunch program. And then all the, the community centers, everything that Chuck and Keith went to that started them on this route of fame and fortune and, you know, and, and, and gave them a chance to express their talent, now you had to pay for it because there were budget shortfalls. And when a family, 83% of the families can't afford breakfast and lunch for their kids, how are they going to pay for those programs? They wind up on the streets, and the white flight causes businesses to close, and then, and then the social programs come in, you know, wages drop, and they saw all this going on. So they were living it. They were living it, and the music that they, that they came out with was an expression of all that. So it's all tied together. In a way, they were, you know, just as much as counter-revolutionaries as you know, as uh, as Jim Morrison and the Doors and 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 the Who are back in the '60s. Wow, really? <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we did what we loved, and we found the angle. We found the angle to express what we wanted to do. Yeah. And and that one thing about marketing. This is this is this is key. Listen, we did a lot of political things, but we were politically social minded with our music. You know, yeah. that's public enemy. Bomb Squad, it was about making great songs. It's a whole different mm-hmm. whole two separate two separate worlds that we had. Yeah, but so, nobody mm-hmm. listens to what you but, say if you don't have great songs. So it was yeah, not, but, yeah. yeah, but 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 they didn't listen to what you say if you had a great love song. Okay, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Great songs. I, I don't don't confuse. Hey, don't confuse music. Don't confuse. Hold up. Hold up. Hold up. Don't confuse great songs. That's just music. That's art. Because we are artists. Yeah. So yeah. this is the thing is, we we learned to understand. We needed a we needed a, a, a angle to come at 
the world. And it was about it was a it was a short plan. Come in the game, shock the world, say what we had to say, and and get out. But the problem was we said what we had to say and it stuck. Mm-hmm. Because it was at a time when we was doing this stuff, and let me tell you, there was nobody even from black people. Oh, we don't want to hear that black message. That they, oh, put it this way, we don't want to hear that black that black panther stuff. Because in the in parts of the eighties, besides the drug epidemic, you know, black black leaders and politicians was, hey, we're good. Don't disrupt the balance of what's going yeah. on. While in the streets, there was a whole different thing as you see today. You know, mm-hmm. so now it's kind of the only reason why we see it a lot today because everybody got an iPhone or Google phone and whatever, smartphone, mm-hmm. you want to put it that way. And they can film it faster. They can film it faster. And with the use of the Internet, it gets around the world. The minute you, the minute you and Facebook and all that, the minute you do it. So that's yeah. the difference of today and then. You know, we always had that problem. You know, I remember I was in seventh I got a quick story. I was in the seventh grade, and I went to private school, uh, eighth grade, rather. I'm in private school. We get days off, you know, private school kids, Lutheran. We get days off that public schools don't get. You know, yeah. I, don't know what, I, don't know what, I don't know what day it was, but I was going to my friend's house, and I was pulled over by the police trying to figure out if I'm cutting school and what am I doing out of school and why are you going to this house? And I'm like, I'm going to see my friend. And we both happen to be off. And if he didn't douse for me at this time, an eighth grader, I don't know what would have happened. Because they was looking at just, we're going to throw you in the, we're just, we just going to throw you in jail. So this was 75. No mm. different than today. Yeah. So yeah. we just get to see it faster. So our angle coming in was, we need an angle because we had to be different than everybody else. And being right. different is is taking that chance. Will this kind of political thing work? Because bottom line, record labels is looking at this like, okay, y'all are political. But we signing you guys, we, we did a deal with Def Jam so the labels can make money. And they want, they want to sell records. We want to put out a message. Mm-hmm. So we're dealing with economics and business right now. So, so it just happened to work, and the, new, and we, the, the younger generation became fueled by it. Because we used to battle mm-hmm. with the politicians about what we saying. We was rebel rousers. We was causing trouble. We were starting up. And that just wasn't coming from the, the, the white politicians. That was coming from the black people in government. So we were fighting the black people more in government than we was doing with the white. So yeah, so now you know what? Let me crazy. notice that you know, when when you guys first started coming out and started getting you know popular in the '80s and you know the whole music you know video thing took on. I remember back then when you guys came out, um, you know, people calling you guys racist and you know you know the white community shaking in their boots and like you even just said the black community saying, oh, we don't want to hear that Black Panther stuff. Now with all of that going on. How the hell did you guys get so popular? <laughs> because because tension tension and dissension makes you famous. <laughs> it, 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 you know what? It, I was I'm more the like the older adults 
didn't understand it. Yeah. But the kids embraced it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it was like, yes, somebody is making something that's saying something that I can follow because, you know, I have my, I have, listen, man, I have my white friends, man. They used to be like, when they was young, they, when they finally get up and say, yo, I remember I was like 12 years old. I had to go into my garage in my house in a place where my parents was nowhere around and listen to a public enemy record because mm-hmm. they wanted to know about black culture. Well, I'll keep it tight. Because from, it was from my side. I mean, when I first heard, you know, um, F, uh, uh, Elvis Presley and John Wayne, right, on the record, I was like, what the hell is that? Why are you picking on Elvis and John Wayne? What did they do? Right? I mean, what's up, slave? So I, I, I started, you know, we didn't have the internet then, so I started reading. I started going over to the NYU library, and I tried to find out what was going on. All of a sudden, I realized... Most of Elvis Presley's early songs were originally recorded by black artists who sold their songs for a hundred bucks, yep, and didn't get mm-hmm. any royalties. And Elvis never kicked anything back to them. And I'm like, oh, that's what they're talking about. John Wayne was best friends with Cecil B. DeMille, who disowned his daughter because she married a filthy Mexican, according to his words. Wow. And and that filthy Mexican. Was um, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Anthony Quinn. Oh my God! Right? Anthony Quinn didn't ta- never talked to his father-in-law, who was Cecil B. DeMille. And I'm wow. like, and, and you know, John Ford and John Wayne, they were uh, not too enthused about the early uh, civil rights movement. That's why Charlton Heston broke with them. And you start reading about all this stuff. They were, and mm-hmm. Cecil B. DeMille was a big anti-Semite, anti, very anti-Semitic for a long time for a long time and you start reading these stories especially from Anthony Quinn's point of view you know and you go now I see what they're talking about I mean public enemy opened people's eyes if they were willing to listen for a guy who was like totally into heavy metal because it was counterculture and and rebel and all of that you can't get more rebel than listening to public enemy but here's the biggest thing the reason one of the biggest reasons why because we was we was we was we was younger saying that. Usually it's the older ones, the older adults saying that. But when you got younger kids that has a pulse to the streets and it's inside of things saying this, you, you, the, our generation looks at it different now. And the younger generation that was coming up under was looking at things differently. And like, wait a minute, these guys is, I'm relating to them. So this is making sense to me now. This is all making sense. And Reagan did one mm-hmm. thing for sure, which was take what was generally considered the the black issue and made it a poor issue because no. the middle class got hit hard under Reagan. You know, anyone who was living in a community got hit hard because it ended all federal, you know, to give a tax cut to the wealthy and just waiting for it to trickle down – it killed the inner cities because it took all federal funding out. And then you got Republicans coming in because of Reagan's popularity who imitated that on a state level. So everyone, you know, in my neighborhood, middle class, you know, neighborhood got hit. So all of a sudden, the issues in the black community were the same issues.
issues in the middle-class white community on Long Island. It brought everybody together in a way that formed a coalition, a political coalition. Hmm. Yeah, see, and that's stuff you don't know about, and that's stuff that nobody ever comes out and tells you. So when you guys came out and started speaking to, you know, to us about it, I mean, this is, you know, this has been a trickle-on effect for many years. Elvis comes out, the older generation says, hey, you know what, Elvis is no Glenn Miller, he's you know, speaking the acts of the devil, and then all these other yeah. bands come out, and, you know, the older generation says no, you know, and especially when you guys came out and started speaking about, you know, John Wayne and Elvis, you know, the, you know, older white America, they didn't want to hear that about their heroes, you know, no. so it's, it's no. yeah. yeah. They, no, they, they, you know, you know uh, nobody wants to hear the truth about things. Uh-huh. You, can, yeah. you can put up the false stuff or... or True. Or not talk about the truth about situations, and everybody's happy. But now yeah. you want to hear the truth. It's like, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's too much for me. And everybody's like, well, is, is there any hope? Yeah, there well, is I hope. Mean, you know how many people are like, oh, black Jews and gays that, you know, are, didn't, didn't fight the revolution, they're not real Americans? Well, wake up. There's a whole Jewish Revolutionary War graveyard on 6th Avenue and 11th Street, Manhattan. Right, a revolution, Jewish Revolutionary War soldiers, evil writing on it. The 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 first man to die for this country was a free black man, Crispus Attucks, at the uh, Boston Massacre, yes. and and we all the army was losing. They kept running off the battlefield at Valley Forge. Who trained our army so we could fight the British and win? Was a guy bounced out of the Hessian army because he was gay. And, and and Washington hired him because he was the best damn trainer there was. And he trained our army and turned him into a professional army. So everyone who, who – people don't know their history. and We're not taught this stuff at school. So it, it no, seems like it's no. – yeah, it seems like it's a white only, you know, heroes there. But there were a lot of other people that were part of this. America was a melting pot from the beginning. It wasn't like a bunch of immigrants showed up, you know, in, in, a, in the late 1800s and changed America. We were all, the minorities were always here and part of it. I mean, if you even want to look at it, I mean, the slave states is what funded the war. We won the, we won the revolution on the backs of slavery. So it, mm. you know, it, you know, all this is is part of America. Yeah, and it, and it's just a shame that people don't want to know that history on a daily basis, and the schools don't teach that stuff. So. Mm. Amazing. No, it's amazing it, stuff. It's 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 that you know, and our and our and the best way we knew how to at, at voice some of our opinions, what we which which were which what it was. This is our opinion on things. It's yeah. through music. Music mm-hmm. brings everybody together. This is why you know it became, you know, everybody would come to a public enemy thing and be like, yeah, that's right. And so you get the real story. Nobody wants to say the real story. But you know, like I said, at the end of the, at the end of the day, you know, we always it's still it's it's still marketing, but it's marketing in a different way. You know, we wanted to be different than what everybody else was. Being different is marketing. So what's going to make us stand out different than I don't know? Well, at the, making music because people don't know what the group is about until they they see the records, but they don't really know what the group is about. Then the mm-hmm. DC Boys and the Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five and and uh, you know Sugar Hill Gang and um, uh, what other rap groups are you got you know other rap groups like um, 
guys like Disco Four and all these other guys and Stetsasonic and you know what, what makes us different. Yeah. This angle. Now, this is a great angle because we can we can challenge the American government. And ed- education, yeah. you know, gave us all this. I mean, we we had the opportunity to learn for ourselves. I mean, it, it, you know, when you're in a college atmosphere, you meet other people, and there's always these nerdy bookheads who know this stuff and start talking about it. You go look it up for yourself. You know, and now yeah. with the Internet, it's even easier. But education is that sparked us all that. All this comes from education. And today, with college tuition going through the roof, you know, not many kids see a, a chance for them to go. And no. that's yeah. part of this documentary, too. I mean, And, and that's, that's, that's there, too. But then, you know, as artists, we, 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 we have the education but this is still about a bunch of guys that took some music that they've been doing all their lives and, and pushed their art onto the world. This is the art that we was doing. So mm-hmm. based on that, our musical production style is another part of American history. You know, we're, yeah. the top, we're, we're, we're one of the top 50 producers ever, ever making music. <laughs> you don't mm-hmm. get that. You know, easy, no. very easy, because what we did was brought a whole new sound, brought a whole new change. But at the same time, that music for Public Enemy was aggressive, was chance-taking, was at a time where we didn't have to worry about sample clearances. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. it was, but it was done in a musical realm, which changed the landscape of how records, was, how, how records are being made. And then, you know, today is a whole nother thing, but then it changed the whole landscape. Yeah. You know, well, so you it, know, it's, it, it leaves its mark. Oh, big time. And to leave so your mark in there, places. And it, go ahead. No, I was going to say, was, was, you know, the shock value of things from back then that you were able to do, you can't see that now, and I feel like it's because of of everything that we we've we've all been through as 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 humans and everything. But with the with the internet and everything being at our fingertips now, when you guys came out with Fight the Power and that came out on MTV as a video, people were like, "Oh my God, what is this stuff?" You know, freaking out about it. If somebody did this now, most people would say, "Eh, we're not shocked anymore." So, did you think now if Public Enemy were were, were to come out today and to do this message, do you think you would be able to get through to as many people as you did in the in the late eighties, early nineties? Um, today, nah, I don't I don't think so, but me personally. Yeah. I could be wrong, but I don't think so. I don't think so we'll get through many people today. Because what happens is because of well, well you know what? It's kinda of, it's kinda of hard to answer that. But because of groups like us that was becoming more powerful and unifying yeah. Somewhere along corporation, they decided not to promote that. Hmm. Because what happens is you're promoting a different mindset. Now let's promote let's promote the negative stuff. Now even though positive records was being made, even till this day, there's a bunch of dope positive artists, but because of the negative records, and mm-hmm. this is what somebody says. Well, this is what the majority of, especially in America, this is the, this is the, what the majority of of everybody likes. Well, this is the kind of record that's making money for us. Let's just pump back. 
I'm oil, man. Let's, let's yeah. switch this around. Let's pump, let's pump the negative records and, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. keep it at that level. So if that's the case where those records is making what well, I want to know records making men, those, those getting the most and today. I can say records not really selling like they used to do. So you're getting yeah. the most data. So what's getting the, what kind of music is getting the most data out there? All right. So mm-hmm. we have all this trap music, the negative stuff. And, you know, it's that because that audience has been shifted to like that because that's the kind of thing where you don't have to really think about what's going on. You know, you hear some of the some of the artists that's not even concerned with what's happening. You know, some artists yeah. they're not even concerned with what's happening until they're on the other end of the road where that's happening to them. Then everybody won't be concerned. But most artists are not concerned. Everybody wants to be a star. Yeah. You know, they want to be a star before anything happens. So. We was concerned about bringing something to the people that they can hold on to and 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 take away other than you know you can call me on my cell phone like okay <laughs> you know like all right all right all right so okay you know what where where does it exercise your mind and then how do you make records to to show a different perspective of things and still be effective. Like public enemy right now is big overseas. I mean, we got, we got a foreign school of a huge following over here because our words that we was kicking 25 years ago is coming to light again with the younger generation. Yeah. yeah. That's why records like fight the power is everybody's theme song and stuff like yeah. that because that's showing uh, a sign of, of this is what we need to, to deal with the times that we're going through. You know, but like I said, you know, in this day and age where, you know, we still got to, people still got to make money. And people like I can, NWA I, and, and, and Public Enemy were like the social media feeds of the late 80s and early 90s. Well, it was, oh, it was yeah. more than that. It was more than just us. It was, there was a ton of it was a yeah, ton yeah, of people with, that, was, that had a social media feed. But because, but because, you know, Chuck said one thing back then. Rap music. I use rap, not hip hop. Rap music was the CNN for black people. Because each rapper, True. whether you're in the Fifth Ward with the Ghetto Boys, or uh, you up, you up in Midwest with well, guys like you passed away, MC Breed and those cats, and mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know you're coming out with Mix, Mix a Lot up in the Seattle area. You know you had things going on with you know with Luke and them coming down out of you know out of the Miami area. It was our CNN. We got to tell our stories of what's happening in our communities. Yeah, yeah. So that was because we didn't have that, and that was more frightening. Now that we have social media and YouTube and you know Facebook Live, so you, a lot you know, easier. That, that people, the, yeah, the, a lot the regular people can can do this now. That's why I said it's yeah. kind of it's, it's there. But who want, who's going to make a song about that and still have relevance and still and still hit home to the point like. Yo, I I need this record. 
mm-hmm. when some of the younger generation, they have information, but some of them don't know how to use it properly. Mm-hmm. And the ones that the do joke. know how to use it properly, mm-hmm. like, you know, you got your few, like your Joey Badasses and them. You know, you got J. Cole, he'll say his thing, you know, but mm-hmm. you don't see him flashing on there like you see Young Thug, um, uh, 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 designer, OT Genesis, and they make all them crazy records. You know, yeah. yeah, you don't see them. You don't see them guys. You know, you don't see those guys with the because somebody does a study and say like, well, this is not the record that people want to listen to. Are you doing a study mm-hmm. based on six six people in a demographic? <laughs> like that, <laughs> they don't represent us. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. they don't represent us. So you yeah. can't really say that. But that's what they do. Sure. That's yeah. what's happening. So now you know, you know, advertising is like, yeah, we want Rihanna up there with her drama, and we keep TMZ popping everybody with their drama, and she'll sell more vitamin water, cocoa, cocoa water, and <laughs> she with her craziness, <laughs> and and all we need is, and all we need is, is is Kanye saying, which is an intelligent brother, says a lot of great things, but then makes a spectacle on the other half, and then say something really crazy. And you'd be like, oh, yeah. man, you just said something really great, and you negated it by doing something crazy. But, you know, also, I mean, like, Public Enemy also represents an independent thinking, a freedom spirit, you know, and it it inspired me to walk away from the studio system. I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, when, when, when uh, Dracula the Undead became this huge international bestseller, I had yeah. studios pursuing me left and right. And I heard, I heard what some of them wanted to do. I mean, one wanted to turn stuff into, like, make it lighter to have a comedy in it. Now, Bathory, Countess Bathory, the villain in the book, is, you know, a well-known lesbian in history. So they yes. wanted to lighten her up. She wants to destroy the world. And they wanted to bring in uh, Renfield. And I said, well, Renfield's dead. Yeah, but he could be in love with Bathory, and she's a lesbian. So every time... He says, I love you. She smacks him, and then he eats a fly. Isn't that funny? And I'm like, what? Oh, my God. You, you know, <laughs> and they say, <laughs> I mean, this is the ideas you get on these little post-it notes, which is yeah. why, you know, I did, I went the independent route and, and did episode 50 on my own. Now, we didn't have as big a budget, but it sold, you know, 500 times its, its budget. It was a huge yeah. hit. You know, and you can do things independently on your own, your own steward, your own way. And that's one thing Public Enemy has stood for. So being friends with these guys and loving their music inspired inspired me to do a lot of different things, you know, that take chances. You know, go with your gut. Don't listen to anybody. You know, say, say what you got to say, you know, in the movies. You know, and that's led me, you know, to, you know, to put together Alt House now, my new company. With, I mean, you know, I, I mean, we we have a, you know, how many horror filmmakers are working with, uh, you know, one of the top Broadway producers. We ran uh, uh, Canon Films and nominated for Academy Award for The Hours. Michael Alden, one of the top producers around. I mean, how many? And we have another uh, great horror producer, Mike Kuchiak. How many, how many, you know, horror companies could boast that? But that we did on our own, you know, and that comes from the spirit of Public Enemy too. And I'm sure it inspired millions of other people 
to do a lot of different things. Oh, I'm you sure know, of it. it so it's, now, it's that independent spirit. Now, let me ask you this before we get back into it, because you and I have been friends for a while. I'm friends with Dakray for a while as well. Absolutely loved Dracula Undead, and I've spoken to you about that plenty of times. Is Old House going to do a Dracula the Undead movie or what? That's the plan. That's oh, the please, plan. Man. I'm going to do it. Gotta. We got to do it. We are upping our budget now, and then we're mm-hmm. going to roll into the Public Enemy, and we're going to be making like two, three films a year after next year, um, and uh, with our distribution deal with Archstone, our partners. And uh, after that, as we move up in budget, we're going to go, we want to do our own undead. I'm I'm tired of uh, getting stories. I mean, you know, I mean, it's like we've had, we've, we've had so many offers and different things with crazy ideas. I mean, there were studios that had Dracula projects in development that wanted to incorporate part of undead into the other movies and just crazy stuff that I don't even understand. Like, you know, I don't even understand it. It's all about branding, and it's not about art or stories anymore. And I don't believe, um, and Public Enemy proves it, art and commercialism are mutually exclusive. You can have a, 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 do art in a commercial way, and that's what we try to do. I mean, like, you know, even in episode 50, uh, my last film, I mean, we got into the actual re- actual scientific evidence of ghosts. It wasn't just, oh, let's go make a ghost story about a bunch of ghost hunters getting killed by a, go- you know, a, a badass ghost that was played by Ozzy Gibson, by the way, and mm-hmm. Dr. Dre's son, Aramis Brown. Uh, they were same character, different ages. But it... We we got into this stuff. Now, you normally you get a horror movie, you don't want to do anything real. They think it's just a bunch of scares. You don't want to. They don't want to get into something that's interesting to an audience because they're not. They don't care about that. How many scares? Like when you go to when yeah. you screen the movie, it can they start counting scares, and that's all they care about. They don't care yeah. if it's about the movie anymore. Well, there's no there's no story to it anymore. Yeah. It's, you know, and I have nothing against the, you know, making an amusement park ride, but if a movie doesn't have a theme, it has no reason to exist. Every great movie is is giving you a message, you know, and if the message is, you know, there are things beyond our imagination, Horatio, you know, there there is scientific proof for this stuff, because you say to most people, oh, I, I, uh, you know, I believe in ghosts, they think you're crazy. You say you believe Mm -hmm. in in UFOs. Buzz Aldrin saw a UFO when he was going around the moon, right? Going to the moon. Is yeah. it that crazy? I mean, I don't know if it's true or not, but to be crazy and disregard all the sightings. So, I mean, wow. it's it's about it, you know, it's about doing things your own way and trusting your audience and trusting them to be smart. The one thing about mm-hmm. movies today is they dumb them down so that you know the because they don't trust their audience. Yeah, that's the truth. So now, going back over to the PE documentary, Ian, when can we expect to see the documentary released? Is there an ETA on it? Yes, next year for the 30th anniversary of Public Enemy. Okay. Uh, we're shooting it. We, we've already started shooting it, but we uh, finished shooting it with uh, our director, Seath Mann, uh, starting in November when he finishes his uh, BET series. So we'll mm-hmm. get to the big interviews then and get it out to the starting in the festivals beginning of next year, and then I'll hit the theaters, and then we're going to be looking at a movie. Nice. 
Nice. And now is this going to be yep. direct to DVD in the theater, or is that too soon to tell? Uh, I can't imagine a public enemy movie going straight to DVD. <laughs> I can't imagine it. I, I mean, we're already talking to a lot of, well, a lot of big things are happening. I'll put it that yeah. way. You know, it, yeah. it's, you know, and uh, I'm I'm just really grateful that it, you know, it, 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 that they entrusted me with it. And I want to do right by them and make sure it's the right, it's that's the purpose of doing you know i mean we've already heard from people well where's the shootouts you know it's like dude you don't need a shootout i mean that you know not every black story ends in a gun battle you know we did the, we did the gang movies back in the 90s this isn't that story yeah. so we want to make mm-hmm. sure it's done right and not dramatized too much we don't want to make it we want to make it a drama but we don't want to make it into a crime drama that's not what this mm-hmm. is so I mean, we, no. we 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 want to retain control, just like I want to retain control over Undead and make the book that the fans loved. You know, we got mobbed by three thousand people uh, in in France at the, on the Champs Elysees. I mean, think think if we made it with Renfield snapping up flies, how those people would feel. I would be doing <laughs> right by the fans. True. Very true. Yeah. Very true. Yeah. So now. Um, Keith, you also have a documentary that you're working on, um, I know, uh, alongside Chuck D and our main man, Shaq. Uh, what's that all about? The Special City basketball-related project? Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, with Shaq. Oh, no, I um, I didn't do that documentary. I just did a, I did a song for it's, it's Spencer Haywood. Um, it's a cool, it's a really great doc. Um, okay. Spencer Haywood was a, NBA player from Mississippi, yeah. um, yep. Hall of Fame, um, Hall of Fame. and yeah, Hall of Fame, and and he was one. He it's kind of weird because not weird, it's kind of unique because he was one of the ones that kind of started the the thing about the NBA. With it's called the it's called the Spencer Haywood Rule, where he um. He opted out of college so he could take care of his family. Yes. But because he had went to a major college, he needed four years before he could go and play. So, therefore, it was this thing where, like we have now, where players, you know, you, you, can't, you, you, you can't leave college unless you finish your time. But they was there to change it because he had to prove that he had hardship in order mm-hmm. to get played. And there was times at games because he didn't have his he they didn't have the hardship rule. They would not let him in the building because they would say like he's an illegal he's an, an illegal player. He hasn't been cleared by the NBA and college NCAA to play in the games. He was like, yo, man, it's it's hard, it's hardcore, man. He talks about like you know one one team one time he had to stand outside out of the building because they didn't want him in the building and it was snowing. So he couldn't even go to the bus or nothing like that. He had to sit on, he had to stand out in the snow until the game was over. That's insane. That's insane. It's insane. It's insane because you have to prove hardship to come out early. Well, yeah, I remember when he was coming out of college and he went into the the ABA instead. Uh. It was the ABA. The ABA didn't care because the ABA was, was all about competing against the NBA. But then yes, when the ABA correct. and NBA merged, that rule came back and hit him. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. hit him hard. And that was like that. And so Chuck decided to do a soundtrack. And one and the funny thing was Chuck, um, you know, Spencer Hayes was one of Chuck's favorite players. So Chuck is a graphic artist. So when he was like 15, he drew this caricature out of from mem- from a picture and memory of Spencer Haywood. So that became um and Chuck did the artwork for Spencer Haywood's uh, um documentary cover. Oh but nice. The artwork nice. that Spencer did with that's part of it that he did and we and, he, and Chuck still had the 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 caricature that he drew when he was fifteen. Chuck drew this when he was fifteen. Detail. Wow. You know, since they had the beard and all that, it was detail. Yeah. Is you know Chuck is a is a dope, but when he was really into it, Chuck is a dope artist. He's still good now, but it's, that's not it's not like his thing first thing, but it was his first thing. Yeah, I was gonna say and, I think he's a little and, busy and now. It, so. Yeah, a little busy now, but it it came together <laughs> like that. So that was uh that you know that's the NBA with Spencer. You know Spencer went through a lot of stuff. You know he he was married to Iman, oh, yeah. that married yep. David Bowie and David all that. Bowie. So. Um, he was one of the, when he got in, he was one of the highest paid and all that. And he got into the Lakers and then, you know, had his issues. And it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's, I think it's a really, it's a really good documentary about what he had to go through and the things that he tried to change along the way with the college hardship. So the younger players now takes advantage of it. Yeah, awesome. I definitely got to take a look at that. Yeah, it's it's kind of, and I I think they're going to release it. Like, I think the, I think the start of the NBA season. Oh, nice. So perfect. Um, yeah. So So it's coming soon. Kind of, it's going to be kind of perfect. Yeah, it's coming soon. Um, the start of NBA season, so they get the present, the NBA behind it. It's kind of good start, you know, to release that. Um, I'm not mistaken in that. That's what I heard, you know. So. Um, that that's a really really dope project right there, and you know then Chuck is doing, you know I hang out with them. He does the Prophets of Rage. Uh, yes, which is which awesome is, by the way. We were ecstatic about that when we heard of that. Yeah. You didn't see it. You didn't see it yet, did you? No, not yet, man. Yeah. Hopefully they come out here uh, and they do some shows because we would. I'm dying. They go. They go. Yeah, they're going to come back. They coming back here. Good. Um, Perfect. Uh, we'll yo, it's we'll be shooting it. It, it it's yo, oh, nice. it's the guy. I sat there and talked with Tom and um, I was like, I told us to listen. I was skeptical what this was going to be like. Man, that show is awesome. <laughs> it's awesome. It's like him be real and yo, they are, yo, it's yo, it's bananas. The show's bananas. Hey, I can't so, wait to see that. You know, yeah, yeah, and, man. Uh, I'm getting into a little bit of music too. I'm doing, I'm yeah, and I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, I was going to ask you about I'm, that. Why don't you let everybody know what's going on? Well, you know, I'm a I'm a big I I'm a big fan of Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, those type of bands. And, and um, I have uh, I won't say discovered, but I found uh, an incredible all girl heavy metal band that rocks so hard out of Rome. That's my girl Avil Vice, and she's the lead singer. She sounds she sounds like um, uh, I, I have to say Guns and Roses, man. I mean, it's just she can hit those notes. She's incredible, and what a stage presence! So it hit me right away, like wow, this is like the real deal heavy metal, and it's you know what's better than heavy metal played by a bunch of hot Italian chicks, right? 
<laughs> so I want to give a shout out to our to this band that I want to bring to America. We're gonna we're gonna see what we we're gonna do. Um, it's called Sin of Night, and we've got Nomi on drums, Sylvia or Jin on guitar, Electra on bass, and of course Avial Vice lead. And they are absolutely incredible. They they got this song Suicide, which just drives me crazy. And I definitely want to bring them back to the U.S. So. This is uh, this is like their big announcement, their first time being announced to the American public. But they're coming, and all you metalheads, get ready because these. Hey. I mean, if you, they're like they're like a modern day runaways, only better. You know, I mean, it's yeah. just it's incredible, it's incredible. Well, and bring it, them here, and man. And you know, it's funny. You know, you watch the guys; they're like, oh, a bunch of girls playing heavy metal. I don't know. And like two minutes into the set, man, they're like banging heads and. <laughs> and thrashing around and cheering, it's great. They went over every crowd, and they're they're very much electric, and I'm very much excited about them. So I'm I'm, I'm branching out a little bit to the music biz here. <laughs> very nice. No, they they sound good from from the song you sent me. I really enjoyed it, and you know what? If they want to debut in the U.S. right here, man, you know we'd be more than happy to have them. Well, I told them we want to do a show with them, and they are down. They are down. We want to get them on. Uh, let's do it. Let's do it, man. Great. We love metal here. So we love everything here. We love metal. We love rap. We, we're good for it all, man. And we, we're dope. trying to get them on the Unhinged soundtrack, so get Keith to produce a song for them. You know, yeah, can't, like can't hurt to get a, a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame producer to produce one of your first songs. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's, uh, that's pretty good, man. I can't, <laughs> I can't wait to get a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame producer to do that, too. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god! Oh. <laughs> it's real good, you know, straight up heavy metal fun, man. It's they got that rebel, that rebel yell about them. I love it. Well, we're definitely looking forward to hearing more about them and hopefully having them on here. And we're definitely looking forward to seeing this uh, new Public Enemy documentary from Roosevelt to Reagan, Spectrum City, and the rise of Public Enemy. Um, listen, Keith, Ian, I can't thank you guys enough for coming on here and just. Staying with us for so long and just really just telling us everything. We it was a pleasure. Oh, it's been oh, it was a pleasure. pleasure. Yep, it's been a pleasure. And, uh, I'm, I'm always down. Oh yeah, oh yeah, Dr. Ray, we definitely got to come back and do more. Yeah, and we'll be you know we'll be on as we start shooting unhinged. I want to get on and come back and we'll we'll play some clips and we'll get the soundtrack rolling. A lot going on. Open invitation yep. to, to to you, Keith, yep. to everybody else in PE, and Ian, to you as well, man. Uh, anytime you thank guys you. want to come back on, let me know. And thank you for supporting the novel. Cool. We've been way back when, Dracula Undead with Daker and everybody. Absolutely. We all thank you. Absolutely. All right, oh. guys. Thank you so much. We'll no, be talking to you enough. guys soon. Thank you. Okay. okay. Thank you, Keith. Thank you. And have a good night. All right. You too. All right, you too. And that was uh, Keith Shockley of Public Enemy and writer-producer Ian Holt. Man, what a great interview, dude. They were really just a lot of great information, a lot of great stories, Jeff. Great stuff, man. They, they had me laughing. Uh, they were informing me, and great, man. I've always, like I said, peace and since, uh, since I first came out. And, yeah, kind of found them by accident at a concert, at a Beastie Boys concert. Uh, mm-hmm. I had seen them as one of the opening acts, and from there I went to pursue the record. Like everybody said, it was a little little Philly store. It wasn't a big-time store, and they had it, and I bought it, and I loved it. And uh, Man, it, it's great to talk to a guy that I've admired and, and liked his stuff for so many years. And uh, Ian, too, sounds like they got great things going on. And uh, 
I'm glad to be a part of it tonight, man. It's just an outstanding show tonight. Yeah, uh, Ian and I have been uh, friends for a very, very long time. He uh, co-wrote uh, a book called Dracula the Undead, and that's how I uh, befriended Ian with Dakaray Stoker, who is the great-grandnephew of um, of Bram Stoker, the original Dracula author. And this, this second book, which is a sequel to the original Dracula, was absolutely phenomenal. I, you know, as soon as I was done reading it, Jeff, I said, man, this would make an excellent movie. Just the basis of the story and, and the whole story itself was absolutely phenomenal. And I was able to friend Dakaray and Ian right after I read the book, which was, was really awesome. And, uh, you know, was able to tell him, thank you for writing such an amazing book. So now that, uh, you know, Ian and, and Old House Productions are going to hopefully do a Dracula the Undead movie. I'm like a kid in a candy store, dude. That's great stuff. Happy, happy boy. So, you know, it, it's it, listen. It's it's great stuff. Um, you know, we can't thank Keith Shockley and Ian Holt enough for coming on here. Uh, we'll definitely have them on again with us as soon as that documentary is released. And once again, it's called "From Roosevelt to Reagan: Spectrum City and the Rise of Public Enemy." It's the history behind Public Enemy from growing up in Roosevelt, New York, Long Island. You know, Keith, Chuck D, Flavor Flav, Professor Griff, and you know, basically just a whole crew of PE. And, uh, you know, why they did what they did and how they did it and how they got to where they are today, which is a rock and roll Hall of Fame, iconic, legendary rap group. Um, Awesome stuff, man. So we'll definitely have them on again in the future. Uh, Before we get off the air tonight, just want to talk about a couple of guests coming up. Uh, Peter Cambor from their Showtime uh, series, Roadies. He's also in NCIS Los Angeles with uh, LL Cool J. He's going to be here July 21st. Uh, show starts at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And then on July 25th, uh, actress Diane Franklin, uh, better off dead, Monique with the French accent. Mm, absolutely amazing. She's going to be joining us. And then musician Erica Chase is going to be here on July 28th, and we're going to get to listen to her latest single, Paris, which listen to today. Absolutely phenomenal. So check out Erica Chase. So, uh, yeah, so that's it, man. Thank God it's Monday. It was another amazing episode of The Stoop, and we couldn't have done it without, of course, Keith Shockley from Public Enemy and writer-producer Ian Hall. And, of course, you, our phenomenal, phenomenal listeners. Listen, we're at 1.5 million listens because of you, and uh, it just keeps rising. And uh, we're just going to keep doing what we do. We're going to keep bringing amazing guests from the worlds of music, movies, television, books, sports, blogs, life. You name it, we'll have them here, and we're going to talk to everybody about everything. So keep tuning into the stoop, but be- because without you, there would be no stoop, Jeff. Agreed. Without you, or without me. But yeah, the listeners, uh, a lot of friends coming at me and uh, asking me how to listen. Very easy. We've got the website, www.stoopradio.com, uh, Facebook, Twitter. We're out there, man. We're, we're to be found, and more people got to listen in, and we've got great acts. Tonight's show is definitely worth a listen if you're out there and uh, tuning in late or anything. Give it a listen. Great stuff tonight, and uh, yeah. this is what we bring to you. Yeah, and listen, if you have friends that want to listen in or, or, or pa- parents or sisters, brothers, girlfriends, whatever, yes, we are live here on Blog Talk Radio, but you could go to the stoopradio.com the very next day, and the recorded version of this very episode is going to be on there. So if you want to listen to the stories all over again between Keith and Ian and us, uh, just go there and you can listen to it as many times as you want. Download it to your MP3 player, burn it to a CD, listen to it in your car. Um, you know, we're on iTunes and everything. So just keep on, keep on supporting. We really do appreciate it. So good, good time. So listen, 
It's Monday, and Monday is now over. So we're going to let you all go to sleep, and we're going to let Jeff sit in his basement and drink his Heisey Ecto Cooler for the rest of the night. <laughs> Jeff, you enjoy it's that Ecto for, Cooler and stay some. Time for late late dinner and uh, yeah, maybe a beer. And some uh, home run derby. Apparently, uh, as we expected, uh, Giancarlo Stanton is killing it so far. 24 in the first round. Damn. Yeah, and he's on Well, home run derby sucks. But on that note, <laughs> time to go to sleep. So for my good friend, Jeff Perini, for Keith Shockley of Public Enemy, for Ian Holt, and for myself, I'm Jonathan Raggis. Thank you for tuning into The Stoop, and we'll see you all next week. See you soon. Thanks, folks.